So Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no offspring, and so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. But the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own issue shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and count the stars, if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, So shall your, your descendants be. And he believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you, out, brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you the land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. He brought him all these and cut them in two, laying each half over against the other but he did not cut the birds in two. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and a deep and terrifying darkness descended upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain, that your offspring shall be aliens in a land that is not theirs, and shall be slaves there, and they shall be oppressed for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your ancestors in peace. You shall be buried in a, in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between those pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kerizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Ammonites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jezebites. The second reading is from Romans, Romans chapter 10, verses 5 to verse 15, and that's found on page 921 in the Pew Bibles. Romans chapter 10, starting at verse 5. Moses writes concerning the righteousness that comes from the law that the person who does these things will live by them. But righteousness that comes from faith says... Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, on your lips and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if we confess with our lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For one believes with the heart and is so justified, and one confesses with the mouth and so is saved. The scripture says, No one who believes in him will be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and is generous to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how can they they call on one in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in one of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone to proclaim him? And how are they to proclaim him unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all have obeyed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes from the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Again I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Well, as Richard mentioned, um, last week we began our studies of uh, those Reformation bumper stickers, as we've called them, uh, the slogans that sum up the deep structure of the Christian gospel. Uh, the, the video is very uh, fierce, isn't it? Stark corruptions and all this sort of thing. Uh, it's interesting. It's worth doing a study yourself uh, at some point on the uh, medieval Roman Catholic Church. Uh, that that selling of indulgences, where we uh, looked at last week, that selling of salvation. That's a that was a terrible, terrible thing, and it provoked this kind of um, outrage and response, uh, which then formed into uh, the Reformation. We began last week. Uh, where we ought to begin, which is with the grace of God. That glorious, utterly reliable uh, habit, you might even call it, of God, by which he turns towards us in undeserved love for the unlovely. We saw this beautiful paradox of the gospel of free grace, that it's precisely its freeness that makes it so powerful for transforming human lives. In fact, I suggested that it's only the gospel of gloriously free grace, that it's unconditional, that it's absolutely God on the front foot first and foremost, that he is for you way before you are for him, that his interest and concern for you is so much prior to your interest and concern with him. It's only that gospel of free grace that will ever deeply change a person more than more than demands more than law more than conditions more than saying right time to you know earn it or deserve it those things will never do anything other than rearrange the dark furniture of our hearts the only thing that will melt your heart the only thing that will both calm the deep driving fears and shred 
the ugly, self-absorbed pride that stands behind so much of our thoughts and words and deeds, the only thing that will deal with that junk is beautiful, pure, free grace. And today we move on to the second of these slogans. Now you may know the song, uh, actually you probably won't because many of you are too young, but some of you will know the song, that there are some things that go together, right? Horse and carriage. Yes, what else? Love and marriage and grace and faith. Okay, that's why we're doing this one tonight because grace and faith just belong together. Uh, The only proper form of human response to God that lets grace be grace, that keeps grace as grace, that doesn't add a but on the end of it, that doesn't add an also or an as well or a yes uh, as long as... The only human response that corresponds to grace, what we saw last week, is faith, which is why the reformers lived for grace, uh, sorry, uh, for, for faith, lived for this faith alone slogan. And in fact, many of them died for it. Uh, some of the great English uh, reformers, uh, Thomas Cranmer, Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley, these uh, names in the history of the Church of England uh, were, were, were killed for faith alone. Because in it is hid the great gospel structure. And so to dig into this, uh, we're going to look at Paul's letter to the Romans and particularly that passage that was read to us from chapter 10. And uh, you see the structure of the sermon, it's not especially complicated, what uh, faith is, what faith is not, and why it matters. What faith is, what it's not, and why it matters. So first then, what faith is. Uh, Now, throughout uh, his letter to the church in Rome, Paul is trying to walk a very tight line between two different errors. The issue that's on the surface of the letter uh, that he's dealing with is not one that I suspect particularly troubles you or or sort of keeps you awake at night. Uh, It's not something about which you expend a lot of angst, although you don't have to exercise too much imagination to get your head into where Paul's coming from. So, on the one hand... There are a group of, and I'm going to be a little anachronistic here, a group of Italians uh, in Rome. I mean, that makes sense, doesn't it? Italians in Rome. Uh, I'm a Hungarian. I can talk like this. Uh, There are a group of ethnically Italian Christians in Rome who think that God has rejected the Jewish people utterly and entirely, rejected them once and for all since, after all, they crucified the Messiah. Now, like I say, you don't have to exercise too much imagination uh, to think about that kind of anti-Semitism, that kind of theological anti-Semitism that says Jews are now, by definition, all Jews and the Jewish nation and the Jewish religion, by definition, under the uh, condemnation of God. And Paul says, no, you can't do that. That's one thing. On the other hand, He also knows that the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the great events and victory of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ have not left the status of the nation of Israel unchanged theologically. Under the old covenant, Israel was God's chosen covenant people called for his purpose to be a light to the nations. But now in Jesus Christ, things have changed. Israel doesn't stand in that special way with that special place for that special mission anymore. But does that mean God has thrown them off and condemned them? You see, Paul's trying to walk between these two errors. 
And what's so interesting about it is that the Apostle has a fundamentally Jewish reason taken from the Jewish Scriptures for this point of view. We see it in verse 12. He says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. There's no distinctions ethnically here anymore. The same Lord is Lord of all and is generous to all who call on him. Now, it's, it's, uh, it's a little um, hidden in our translation here, but Paul is actually tapping into what you might uh, suggest is the deepest artery of Jewish life and identity. He quotes from a verse which every Jewish person said the first thing they did when they woke up, every person said the last thing they did when they went to sleep at night. He quotes from a verse, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, called the Shema, because the first word in the Hebrew verse is Shema, which is the word for hear. And the verse goes like this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's one God, Israel's God, Yahweh. And he is the Lord. He alone is God. And Paul takes that, just in that little phrase, the same Lord, the one Lord. It actually picks up on uh, the same point that he makes back in chapter 3, at the end of chapter 3 there. And he picks up that point and he says, um, he does something utterly brilliant, utterly brilliant with it. He says, precisely because there is one God, that means he must be the God of all people. Uh, you may know from high school history, okay, so now I'm, I'm talking to, you know, I'm, I'm with your age group here. High school history, uh, back in the uh, late 15th century, the late 1400s, uh, the Spanish and the Portuguese, which were the two world naval powers of the time, divided up the world into two halves after Christopher Columbus had sailed the ocean blue and discovered that there were some pretty good spoils to be had out there. Do you remember this? Uh, it was a treaty, uh, it was down the, I think, the 30th meridian, they called it, and the Portuguese had one side and the Spanish had the other side. And they just divided up the world between them. They thought, Let, look, look, let's go pillage over there and let's not fight each other, wasting resources. Does anyone, do, you, do they teach history at school anymore? Is this sort of, uh, how does that go? Anyone remember? I thought this would be a no-brainer. I thought everyone would get this. Anyway, you don't need to understand the history of it. You can just imagine it. There's two world powers, so how much does each one get? Half. Okay? If there were three world powers, how much would they, how would they have divided the world up in that case? They would have divided it up into thirds. And what the Apostle's saying is this, there's only one God. There's only one God. And therefore that same Lord is the Lord of all people, Gentiles as well as Jews, Hungarians and Chinese and Indians and Celts and Maasai and even strange-sounding Germans. He's the Lord of all. And he's generous, which is actually a bit of a weak translation. It means utterly rich and overflowing in incredible generosity and grace. That's his disposition, his stance towards all who call on him. Now, how does this help the apostle make his case? It's because the only thing that's available to all people at all times, the only thing that's available to all people at all times, apart from culture and history and personality 
and language, the only thing that's available to all people at all times as their response to God is that basic operation of the human heart called faith. The way that human beings relate to God's grace is by faith. That's what Paul says, verse 9. If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you'll be saved. For one believes with the heart and so is justified and one confesses with the mouth and so is saved. The scripture says, no one who believes in him will be put to shame. You see where Paul locates the human response to God in the heart. Not in culture, not in laws. I mean, most of the known world didn't even have access to the Jewish laws, for example. In the heart. And therefore on the lips. Uh, Because as Jesus himself said, it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. It's this belief, this faith, that is the one thing that's available to all people. And what is it? Well, faith is always to believe someone and to believe something. Faith is always to believe someone and to believe something. And that's exactly what we see here. It's to believe in Jesus Christ. No one who believes in him will be put to shame. You see, fundamentally, it is a person-to-person confidence. It's not abstract. It's not theoretical, it's not just a piece of your mental furniture, it's something that happens in your heart, a person-to-person confidence, a heart rest in him. Faith is always to believe someone, but it's also always to believe something. And you see, particularly the, the something is that this Jesus Christ is Lord, um, King, Ruler, the one who actually has legitimate, rightful authority over all the big things and over all the small things, over all the grand stuff and over every detail of your life. And he is that precisely because God has raised him from the dead. Faith is always to believe someone and to believe something. And that's what Christian faith is. And so uh, encouraged by this, theologians have actually seen three different facets to the jewel of faith. There's this one here, the the belief in the authority of Jesus as the true and living Lord, and so uh, resting in him for your pattern and direction in life. Faith believes and confesses that he is Lord of your life. Uh, Not anyone else. Not you. Not even you. That he sets out the path and pattern for what you count as good and bad as worthy and unworthy, as right and wrong, as desirable and hateful, as success and failure. He's the Lord. And that's whether you understand it or not. You, you, you think that revenge actually is quite a sweet thing to do at times. Have you ever found that revenge? That, that really, I mean, nicely, of course. But finding a way to get back at someone who's done the dirty on you, that's just not on when you trust Jesus as your Lord, right? Because he's the one that calls the shots. So he's Lord uh, and we trust in his authority. But second, faith is also a trust 
from the heart in Jesus Christ as your prophet. That you believe in Jesus' words. That he is the one who speaks truth into your life. So that your mind is formed above all else by his words to you. More than all the words that come to us from outside in that constant bombardment, more than all the words that we speak to ourselves, all the different stories that we hear and participate in that shape and mould our worldview, we trust in Jesus Christ as our prophet. And third, faith is a trust in the heart, uh, from the heart in the work or the achievement or the victory of Jesus Christ, believing in Jesus Christ as your priest, your great high priest. Doesn't matter how much your conscience weighs you down, doesn't matter how honest a look that you take into your life and you, you get past the sort of triviality of saying, oh, no one's perfect and I'm not perfect and I guess I'm not perfect. And that's such a trivial and shallow thing to say, of course. You dig down a little bit deep and you see the darkness and you see the, the blackness and the ugliness and you know the motives and you, you, you kind of, you just notice what it is that you're... And your conscience accuses you. And faith is trusting that Jesus Christ is your priest so that he determines the dirt or the cleanseness of your conscience. That he has atoned for your sins. That he offered himself once for all so that you are clean now. Kind of whether you feel it or not. And not just the past, but also the future as you face the inevitability of your own death and judgment. You can do that with an assurance because your great high priest, Jesus, is still on the job. He hasn't gone into retirement. He hasn't sort of gone home and, and, and picked up his bat and ball. He's interceding at the right hand of the Father with you and he has you. He will hold you safe, even through death, even in judgment. Now, the truth is, you say that we all have a prophet and a priest and a king, or multiple prophets, priests and kings, all of us. We, all, we don't use that language. These are, but these are not just sort of interesting ideals from the Bible. These are fundamental human realities. We all have people who we listen to, or ourselves, our prophet. We, we all have a, a conscience and, and that, we, that we hear where we are condemned or not condemned, um, condemned or, or, or told that we're okay, uh, our priests. We have lords, every one of us. And you find out who your functional prophet and priest and king is under pressure. When it matters what you think, when, it, when it's, you're not just shooting the breeze, it's not just another Snapchat or something like that, when it has actually serious consequences for what you think, that's when you'll find out who your prophet is, whether you'll stick with the word of Jesus. Or when someone pressures you, or challenges you, or attacks you, attacks your competence or adequacy as a person, the, the thing that your heart moves to to defend yourself, the, the kind of that instinctive gut reaction where, where what you say in your heart, even if you don't say it with your lips, but you say in your heart, but! And whatever it is, the thing that you appeal to then, that's the authority power of priesthood right there to, to 
make you okay. And in the moment of pressure, when someone's pushing you to behave or decide to do something that's wrong, to head down a path that you know is not what you ought to do, it doesn't matter all the excuses you pretend sound very good for you, you know that that's just junk. You find out who your king is. So you see how it's a pressure. It's the pressure moments that tell you who is your prophet and your priest and your king. And Christian faith is to have Jesus as your prophet and your priest and your king, to have your heart's rest and trust located, grounded, sort of sunk into him. I don't care what other people tell me. It's Jesus who I listen to. I don't care what my conscience tells me. It's Jesus who cleanses me. I don't care what other people want me to do. I don't care what you want me to do. I'm going to follow Jesus. But at the same time, you see, it's not only under those pressured moments, because the truth is, most of us don't have crises, you know. Well, some of us have crises every day, but not many of us have crises every day. Most of us have crises only rarely. And so who your prophet and priest and king is, who your faith is sunk into, is lived out in the minute-by-minute, day-by-day, year-by-year patterns and rhythms of your life. When Jesus is your prophet, it means that you'll feed on his word. I mean, he's your prophet, right? You'll feed on his word. You'll read your Bible more and more. You'll, you'll have, I mean, my Bible's just, so I've got a friend who, who repairs books because my Bible's just, just collapsing. I've turned the pages too many times. That's the idea. You should be going through a Bible every couple of years. Just, well, they're digital now, so a new iPhone every, every little while. Um, because his words are life in a world where so many words are death, right? You'll listen to your prophet. And, and you'll have an openness and lightness about life. There'll be a kind of buoyancy to how you go through your life when Jesus is your priest because it means successes don't puff you up and failures don't cast you down because your priest has atoned for your sin and so your default stance of your heart is one of just prayer. You just, I mean, what, what, what's left to do if you're, you're atoned for? And your, your past is dealt with and your hope is secure. And why wouldn't that give you a buoyancy in life when your faith is in Jesus, your priest? And in particular, your prayers will be almost sort of, you have to struggle to get out of prayers of thanks and praise. Oh, yes, I should pray for a few things. That's true, and I will, I will. But, oh, golly, Lord, thank you so much. For me, you did this. For me. And when Jesus is your king, you'll take up your cross and follow him into loving service and the attentiveness to the needs of others. Your, your heart will go out like his in compassion rather than stay huddled up inside you in self-protection because you march to the beat of his drum he's your king heart resting trusting faith like this changes everything do you see it's a kind of a complete yielding and i want to just um uh deepen this point with uh, an observation that an uh, author by the name of Robert Adams made where he contrasts two kinds of faith. He says, uh, on the one hand, there's uh, what he calls taxi driver faith. Uh, taxi driver faith is, I trust X, 
Ms. Taxi Driver or, or Uber Driver. I thought of it, but you don't want to call it Uber Faith because that sounds good, right? So it's not Uber Faith, it's Taxi Driver Faith. Uh, but, but you trust X when you get in the car, right, in the, in the cab. You get in the cab and uh, your life is in that, that person's hands and if they wander over onto the wrong side of the road and into the path of an oncoming truck, then you're cactus. And you're, so you're trusting your life. You, you're, there is trust going on there. But notice how it works with taxi driver faith. Taxi driver faith is I trust X to do precisely what I want, to get me precisely where I want to go. Do you see how that works? You call the shots. Even though you're putting your faith in the taxi driver, you're the one that determines the end point. And actually, what it does is it increases your control. Whereas best friend faith, uh, Adam says, is a different kind of faith. It not only trusts uh, X to do what will be good, it even lets X decide to some extent what that will be. It's like getting to the taxi and saying, you know where I need to go, you take me there. You decide. And the point is that faith in Jesus is that best friend kind of faith taken to the nth degree, taken to the absolute maximum. Uh, Adam suggests that uh, children uh, with parents start out as best friend faith and end up as taxi driver faith, which actually made a lot of sense to me as I reflected on my own uh, experience of being a parent. Uh, A lot of taxi driving. But it's the other way around with Jesus. It's the other way around with Jesus. You see, you might start trusting Jesus in order to get you something that you need. But as your faith deepens and grows, you trust him not just for what you need, you trust him to tell you what it is that you need. You trust him to even give you the destination that you're going to. All right, that's what faith is. We get a bit of a grip on it also by contrasting it and seeing what faith is not. Uh, And so I've got four things to contrast it with. Uh, Two are very short, like this first one, believing in and believing that. Um, uh, In our culture, uh, people, I think, basically regard faith as believing that God exists. Uh, The Bible is very aware of uh, faith as believing that God exists. Uh, And the Apostle James puts it like this. He says, uh, even the devil believes that God exists and shudders. So there you go. Believing that, that kind of faith, believing that God exists, gets you all the way to the level of the devil. That's pretty much as good as it does for you. Uh, And it's got absolutely nothing to do with Christian faith, as you can imagine, because Christian faith is uh, believing in, not believing that. Or at least in addition to believing that. Second, though, um, is the contrast between faith and sight. I want to take a little more time here because I think this is uh, terrifically important. You may recall back uh, when we were looking at the Apostle Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, the second one, uh, he writes in a kind of terrifyingly honest way about his experience of being a Christian. Um, It's full of trouble. It's full of enormous pain and struggle. And uh, he he uses a, a phrase to describe it. He says... Uh, what it's like for him to be a Christian is that his outer nature is wasting away. That's, what it, that's the sort of his experience of just increasing decrepitude. Uh, one writer commented on it uh, in this way, what if we carry about with us the pain of being half put back together and half still in pieces? The image here is of Humpty Dumpty, right? You know, Humpty Dumpty sat in a wall. 
uh, and he fell over and, and uh, he got put back together and we're like half put back together Humpty Dumpties. And some of the bits fit and some of us is just still in pieces. And we're a mess, you see. We're a mess. What if we have identity crises? If we live with ambiguities and face problems that we can't solve overnight? Is that not what being a Christian is all about? As Paul says, we're taken for imposters, yet are genuine, dying, yet behold, we live in pain, yet always full of joy, poor, yet making many rich, having nothing, yet possessing everyone, everything. And uh, the author goes on uh, to comment, he says, Paul is not describing an occasional unfortunate lapse from the norm. Do, do you see this? Uh, he's not saying, normally the Christian life is spent triumphing over everything, oops, and every now and again there's a bit of a dip, but then you get back up to normal and everything's going well again. Now what the Apostle puts before us in 2 Corinthians is that all of life as a Christian, in fact, there are ways in which being a Christian makes life harder, worse, more painful, less easy, more demanding, more tiring, more exhausting, more stretching, more failure, because you're a Christian. That's the normal Christian experience. And the question is, how are you going to handle it? How are you going to handle it? I'm, I'm telling you just how it is. How, and you know that that's how it is, actually. You don't need me to tell you. And the question is, how are you going to handle it? Because on the one hand, you've got the promises of God that say he's for you, and if God's for you, then what can be against you? That he loves you with an unconditional love. And on the other hand, you've got a life that's just up and down and all over the shop. And what the Apostle says is that we, we live our lives not by sight, that is, we live our lives not according to our experiences, not driven by our feelings, not up when we're up and down when we're down. We, we live our lives above the level of experience. We live our lives not by uh, sight, but by faith. He says, so we're always confident, even though we know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. The word confident there um, is a word uh, that talks about openness of face, actually. It means I don't hide myself from the world. I'm, I'm, I'm confident, I'm open-faced in relation to the world. Because we walk, he says, by faith, not by sight. Faith here contrasts with seeing. Instead of looking in and down, faith directs its gaze out and up to Jesus, the ultimate faithful one. And who, I mean, think about it for just a moment. Jesus is the ultimate faithful one. If anyone should have had a life that just went from ups to upper ups, it should have been Jesus, right? If anyone had, was going to have a life that was just, if you're going to be faithful, then your life is going to go well. It ought to have been Jesus, right? And his life just goes from down to deeper downs until he goes all the way down to hell on that cross. That's how faith worked out for him. And then God raised him from the dead. We don't pretend, we don't deny the reality of our experience. We don't sort of keep a smile on our face and say, I'm just H-A-P-P-Y. But we don't live at the level of experience says Paul, not when you have faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. 
Theologian John Webster put it like this. He said, faith is that kind of seeing which corresponds to the way in which God is visible. It's a very interesting comment, isn't it? Faith is that kind of seeing which corresponds to the way in which God is visible. It's that kind of knowing which corresponds to the way in which God gives himself to be known. And the point is that is always in the light of, or perhaps better, the shadow of the cross. It's in the shadow of the cross. Third, um, to contrast faith with sincerity, uh, it's interesting, we, we have a very um, high valuing of sincerity in our culture, uh, which is kind of a faith in faith itself. Actually, that's what sincerity is. Faith in faith itself. And um, so much of our culture demands that sincerity be taken as the ultimate yardstick, although we don't much like sincere extremists. We want extremists to be insincere. Everyone else, of course, they can be sincere. And if you, as long as you're sincere, I mean, who can speak against sincerity, right? Who can speak against sincerity? But Christian faith is not faith in faith. No, no, no. Christian faith is faith in Jesus. It's the object of our faith that matters, not the act of faith itself. And so the final contrast then uh, is between faith and fear. And what follows on from fear, which is risk aversion. Uh, you see this in the great Faith Hall of Fame, which is in uh, the book of Hebrews in chapter 11 there, uh, which is a deeply moving account of those who both triumphed and also suffered, and they did it by the active force of faith in their lives. The author writes in verse 32, What more should I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms and administered justice and obtained promises and shut the mouths of lions. And just when you think what he's trying to tell you is that if only you had faith, then you'd triumph all the time, he goes on and says, they were stoned to death. Oh. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, persecuted, tormented. And then this is maybe my whole favourite phrase in the whole Bible, of whom the world was not worthy. Don't you want to be a person so great in faith of whom the world was not worthy? You see, what is it that can stare down fears? I mean, I don't think that it's very likely that you need to stare down the fear of being sawn in two, right? You're going to have to really annoy some people to get to that point. But, but boy, does that stop us operating in our lives so much on the basis of fear? We're afraid of what people think of us. We're afraid that our life might not work out. We're afraid that if we don't get here or achieve that or meet him or her... So much of our life is spent being afraid. And what will enable you to stare down fear? It's only faith. That's what Hebrews 11 says. It's only faith. In particular, it will prevent you from suffering what um, poet Greg Lavoie calls the common cold of the soul. Uh, I don't know if you've had your cold for the winter yet. Uh, if you have, then, uh, you know, like me, you'll be glad to be over it. If you haven't, don't be smug. It's coming your way. Uh, and um, you know what a cold does to you, right? It just sort of dulls everything. It just dampens and 
dulls and presses down on everything and you just, it's, everything's heavy and kind of grey. And Lavoie says there's a kind of common cold of the soul. I think it's a very evocative phrase. A sort of stagnation in life and in the Christian life actually, which means you only ever kind of half live, a sort of dulled, comfortable, easy settledness. And uh, Lavoie puts it like this, it's a sort of life where sinful patterns of behaviour never get confronted and changed. You just sort of say to yourself, well, it's just the way I am. I mean, what sort of a thing to say is that? It's just the way I am. It's because you're afraid. You're afraid to try and fail. Abilities and gifts that never get cultivated and deployed until weeks become months and months turn into years and one day you're looking back on a life of deep, intimate, gut-wrenchingly honest conversations that you never had. Of great, bold prayers that you never prayed, of exhilarating risks that you never took, of sacrificial gifts that you never offered, of lives that you never touched, and you're sitting in a recliner, that's like a lounge chair, with a shriveled soul and forgotten dreams, and you realise that there was a world of desperate need and a great God calling you to be part of something bigger than yourself. You see the person you could have become, but because of fear, you did not. You never followed your calling. You never got out of the boat. You let the fears win. And the only thing that will overcome the fears is faith. All right, let's conclude. Um, God's word to us today is to be people of real substantial faith. Faith, which is the only thing that corresponds to God's grace, is to trust with our hearts, our hearts rest in Jesus Christ as our prophet and our priest and our king, formed in our minds and our souls and our strength by him. And what that means is that the life of faith is fundamentally outward oriented. It's a, it's a life that's turned outward. That's what uh, Luther said, actually, in, the, in that funny German. Uh, it, it turns you out. And if ever there was a culture that needs turning out, it's ours because we are so inward. And I want to deepen this point with two quotes that illustrate uh, this, I think, very powerfully. I've been very much helped by an image from C.S. Lewis uh, in an essay uh, that uh, he wrote called Meditation on a Toolshed. Uh, and his, his point is, well, listen to what he says. I was standing today in a dark toolshed. The sun was shining outside and through the crack at the top of the door there came a sunbeam. So we're in England, it's the mid-20th century, uh, he's in a rural area, it's uh, one of the three days of the year that there's actually sun shining in England and uh, there's dust in the air. And you know how this works, right? There's, the, like, there's the, the, the crack in the top of the door and the sun's shining through and the dust in the air and um, from where I stood that beam of light with the specks of dust floating in it was the most striking thing in the place. You can imagine this, right? You can, it's like you can almost see the light. Everything else was almost pitch black. I was seeing the beam, he says. But I was not seeing things by the beam. And he goes on, then I moved. So that the beam fell on my eyes, right? He, he gets around into the light, so he looks along it now. Instantly, the previous picture vanished. I saw no tool shed, and above all, I saw no beam. Instead, I saw, framed in the irregular cranny at the top of the door, green leaves moving on the branches of a tree outside, and beyond that, 90-odd million miles away, the sun. 
Okay, now listen to this, it's very, very important. He concludes, looking along the beam and looking at the beam are very different experiences. Uh, Lewis is pointing out something that's very fundamental, actually, that, that you can have experience in either of these two sorts of ways. You can look at the beam, that is, to analyse something by standing back from it and outside it, or you can experience it by being in it, immersed in it, but you can't do both of those two things at the same time, right? That's obvious. You can't do them both at the same time. Now, it's a bit like being at a party. I don't know if you've uh, ever had this experience. You're, you've been at a party and uh, everyone's going kind of swimmingly. It's all oh, good, 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 good. And someone comes up to you and says, you're having fun. And then you sort of stop and think. And, and then you, you oh, I don't know, actually, now that you ask me, I'm, I'm not sure if I was having fun. I, it was all right. I mean, no one really interesting talked to me and no one said much of anything. Now that you mention it, really, I'm, I'm not having much fun. But, but you see what's happened? What's, what's happened is that you've stood outside yourself. You've stood outside the experience instead of looking along the experience, being immersed in it. And when you start analysing your fun, the one thing you're not experiencing is the party. What I'm trying to say to you is that faith is looking along the beam to Jesus Christ. It's not a thing in itself. It is a particular direction of gaze, gazing in the direction of Christ. And to step back, and this is the point, you see, to step back, to, for you to step back and to focus on and analyse your experience and wonder whether your faith is real and deep and how intense it is or not as intense it is or it looks more intense for someone else and why isn't it so intense for me? To try and step back and analyse your faith is to do the one thing that faith can never do because it's to stop looking along the beam to Jesus Christ. second point by way of conclusion is the dynamic of faith. Christina Rossetti uh, was a, a poet uh, and a hymn writer. Uh, she had a very hard life. She struggled with very dark depression uh, for many long periods of her life. She was deeply sad and insecure as a person and as a Christian. And she wrote a really amazing hymn called None Other Lamb. And I think it's one of the most brilliant depictions of faith that I know. And here's how the start of the second verse goes. She says, my faith burns low my hope burns low. Only my heart's desire cries out in me. I know you can relate to that. Perhaps after a particularly frequent stubborn sin or some failure, tiredness, frustration, just the darkness gets you when it just all burns low. It's like a candle that's, that's not bright and big flame anymore. It's just this little feeble thing. Sadness and despair and lowness. And what's so brilliant about what Rossetti does in the hymn is she takes that moment, that moment, that precise moment, and makes that the occasion of faith. You see how it goes on. She says, By the deep thunder of its want and woe, cries out to thee. Do you see the dynamic at work there that this is not a, faith is not a static thing? The very experience of poverty, the very experience of when it all sucks, 
Want and woe, as she puts it, cries out within her because it's hard. And even more importantly, cries out to God. And so she's a person of little faith, yes, but don't you see, she's actually also a person of very deep faith, right at that moment. Right at that moment. Because faith is endlessly shy. It endlessly turns away from itself to the great, objective, powerful, comforting subject of our weak and halting gaze of faith, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, whom we confess with our lips and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, and so is our life. Amen.